You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. What's that saying? A success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And it's attributed to Thomas Edison, although it's actually a woman in the 1890s who coins the phrase. They didn't even say it. In the case of what happened to Alexander Graham Bell and his rival to the telephone patent, a commenter later said it was a case of 1% inspiration and 99% tracing paper. And I'm not sure if many people know it, that actually Alexander Graham Bell had to fight for his patent to the telephone. And a lot of it had to do with undue influence in Congress due to members of Congress owning stock in a particular telephone company. We're going to talk about that because the concept of Congress people trading stocks has come up. And it's something where history can inform, maybe in a way that people Maybe in a way that people don't want to hear. Was the American Revolution a merchant revolution? No, it wasn't. But merchants, those who made their living trading goods, usually in the port cities of America, the big population areas of America during the American Revolution, merchants were a powerful force in the American Revolution. You know, it may well be that mechanics did some of the work and held some of the muskets, but merchants in addition to sometimes grabbing a musket or two, provided the necessary financing for the revolution, the heft, and the ships. Some merchants jumped right into the revolutionary cause. They had every reason to do so, because the dispute between the American colonies and Britain had everything to do with trade and the limitation of trade. Some jumped right in, like Hancock. Others were more reluctant. These are business people, after all. But they made the American Revolution significant and real by virtue of their interest in the effort. But at the same time, the line between their private business and public businesses might not be the first priority when you're engaged in a revolution and want the cause to succeed. You take Carter Braxton, signer of the Declaration from Virginia. He turned his fleet, his merchant fleet, into privateers, started attacking British shipping. He stood to make a lot of profit, but also benefited the cause. The less trade Britain can complete successfully, the more it's going to hurt them to continue the American war. He also took a great risk. In fact, he lost much of his fleet at sea and was ruined financially after the American Revolution. Yet he's considered one of those, you know, rich signers of the Declaration. A real good example here is Robert Morris. London-born merchant. He comes to Maryland in 1747. His father sets him up 
in the tobacco trade. Eventually, he's apprenticing in a shipping and banking firm in Philadelphia, that of merchant Charles Willing. And he rises from a teenage trainee to become a key agent in the Willing firm. His father dies in 1750, and Morris is left with a bit of a fortune. He's also friendly with Thomas Willing, the oldest son of Charles, and who's also going to inherit his father's fortune. They form Morris, um, no, they form Willing Morris and Company in Philadelphia. They do a lot of innovative things. They set up a insurance system among merchants in Philadelphia to group insure their ships, even with some of their competitors. They're like, hey, we may compete, but we've got the same danger. They trade from Philadelphia to India. Morris also eventually becomes uh, willing, becomes a member of the Continental Congress. Morris states, I'm a native of England, but from principle, I'm an American in this dispute. He doesn't initially serve, but he does meet Ben Franklin, George Washington, influential people, and they say, this guy has got a knack for finance. He becomes a superintendent of finance of the United States from 1775 to 1778. He also serves in Congress. He's going to, too, be one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. But he's also trading flour and tobacco to France in exchange for war supplies, such as gunpowder and blankets that are going to be used by the Continental Army. He uses his own ships this is a risk. And he receives a commission of 2% on each shipment of supplies, right? I know what you're thinking. If a government officer did this today, we would think that's absolutely crazy. And there are forms where you can see where government officers might be benefiting one way or another. But if they did it today, this directly, it would seem so shocking to us. Not as much so then. Now, it is true that eventually, Political opponents of Robert Morris would criticize him for this impropriety, uh, say that he was just increasing his uh, his commission. There are investigations of Morris's conduct by the Congress because of the Revolution. Becomes one of the richest men in America in the 1780s. When Washington moves to Philadelphia to become president of the United States, he's staying at Robert Morris's mansion. So this line is pretty man between these, these these things. In 1789, state-backed revolutionary war bonds. So these are bonds that the various colonies and then states would float to support their own revolutionary war efforts. It's how much of the war is paid for, really have very little value. And it's Alexander Hamilton and this famous assumption plan that consolidates the state debt into the new federal government. Congress and people in New York, and it's not Washington at this time, capitals in New York, know about this before the average citizen. And they're scooping up thousands of these bonds from farmers who might have just served a various state in the militia or in the Continental Army and had these bonds of very little value. They're paying pennies on the dollar, getting these bonds they know that this assumption plan will probably pass. Why? Because they're members of Congress. It's a pretty big fight. James Madison, this is where he's going to turn against the creature of his own making in a lot of ways, 
the federal government and get a little concerned about what in the wrong hands the government can do because of this very issue. He stages a fight for people who had the original holders of those bonds to get some of the money. It fails in Congress. He fails on that vote. There's a lot of arguments against. No, it's a free market. Now, it would be difficult to find out who owned this originally. You can't get involved in these trades. It's like the government getting involved in speculation. All of this. But here's the point. You know, Madison is there with public opinion. So is Jefferson about all this stock jobbing and trading that goes on. Lawmakers actually prohibit future Treasury secretaries from buying or selling government bonds while in office. And that's a common thing that's going to occur now for more than 200 years. Congress is going to limit what that executive branch can do left and right with various laws. But here's what they didn't do. They did not extend the ban to themselves. Even after reform, they could still trade in government bonds. And that also has really been the history. Here's what uh, Brian Bard said. He's a former congressman from the state of Washington who co-authored a stock act in 2006. This was in response to the Enron scandal and some other things. Congress has no problem imposing rules on others. We have a more difficult time doing it for ourselves. I think there's two things at work here. One is, as we discussed, um, America's not a monarchy, right? That's the reason we have the revolution. And it doesn't have an aristocracy in the way of landed gentry of nobles, of nobility, of title like that, like in other countries. But there obviously is an American aristocracy, even if you want to call it a meritocracy aristocracy of sorts, successful merchants with more money, successful landowners enlarging their land. They're very influential in the first Congress, which is largely appointed by the state legislatures, which many of them are elected to. They're even very influential in the elected Congress. In the, in the first Continental Congress, you have Morris's Washington, Randolphs, Rutledges, Hancocks. If you're trying to start a revolution, if you're trying to build a country, it helps to have big successful names backing, right? So there's this propensity to have people of wealth and importance and prestige already in the system of government. And if they're in there, should they become a complete freeholder and give up everything they own? That wasn't in the cards. Secondly, and it seems like the opposite, but these two things work together, the idea of Congress as a citizen's legislature. Anyone can join the Congress, right? It has to be open to all. Elected every two years, the House of Representatives is. Elected from small districts, they are. Popular election demanded by the Constitution. They are not, like original senators were, they are not appointed by the governor, by the legislature, or anyone. They're elected by the people in the district they represent. 
And this comes from an idea. I mean, it's different from the Continental Congress selected by the state legislatures or even the Constitutional Convention selected by the state legislatures. These are people elected by the people. And something comes out of that, a thought that, well, this is a citizen's legislature. First of all, they have to be the same as everyone else. And if everyone else can trade stocks, can do business, so can they. But also, there's a tendency to think of them, well, if you don't like them, you can throw the bums out in two years. And that's why the Constitution gives tremendous powers to this branch, the legislative branch. It's considered they get to write their own rules. They, in the House, originates any bill involving money. There's very few limitations often put on themselves. You see in this, even today, the response of the Speaker of the House to legislation that might ban or prohibit or limit Congress people from trading in the stock market. We're a free market economy, Nancy Pelosi says. They should be able to participate in that. Now, Nancy Pelosi's husband is a stock trader, trades all sorts of companies that are regulated by the government. Not alone in this, as many members of Congress in exactly the same. That defense of it, though, we're just regular people. It's a, hey, you set up a free market economy. Why should, uh, you know, this isn't the, people aren't entering the priesthood here. They're not entering some kind of different cult. They're supposed to be regular people from regular walks of life. That's kind of the nice spin to put on um, what Pelosi's saying. I'm not bashing Pelosi by any means. I'm just presenting that the argument she's saying is an argument that also might have been used by Morris or others when they were criticized about this. You have... Recently, Chris Collins, convicted for insider trading. Richard Burr of North Carolina under scrutiny. Um, former Senator Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, selling millions in stock before the pandemic. It's, you know, raising eyebrows. But that's all it could do because there is no law um, preventing people from engaging in stock trading. After... I mean, you really have to go all the way. I, it's a lot of questions in the 30s. There's a lot of um, executive branch, all kinds of rules there. When it comes to Congress, you really got to go all the way to 2012. This is after the health care bill is passed under the Obama administration. And many people are looking and saying, wait, these guys are investing in health care stocks that are going up. And so Congress passes the Stock Act in 2012. And, and what the Stock Act of 2012 makes something obvious that wasn't in the law before, that members of Congress are expressly prohibited from insider trading, just like you and I. Gave the House and Senate Ethics Committee the ability to look at it, to put in new ethics rules. The reporting conditions of the Stock Act, where Members have to report some large trades that during the pandemic, when they reported their trades as a result of 2012, then you saw uh, Feinstein, Feinstein of California and Inofe of Oklahoma, um, a Republican and a Democrat, both get criticized for the, the amount that they sold off. Feinstein said, under Senate rules, I report my husband's financial transactions. I have no input into his decisions. My husband in January and February sold shares of a cancer therapy company. This company is unrelated to my to any work on the coronavirus, and the sale was unrelated to the situation. Not good enough for Elizabeth Warren, for instance. We have laws to prevent insider training, but members of Congress are inherently insiders. 
So why should we let members of Congress trade individual stocks in the first place? You have AOC saying there's no reason of members of Congress should hold and trade individual stock when we write major policy and have access to sensitive information. Senator Ossoff of Georgia also looking into this, and Pelosi has recently changed her thinking on it, especially since Republicans such as Kevin McCarthy are looking into this or possibly use this as an issue in the midterms. And um, you do have some Republicans, Holly in uh, Missouri, that are talking about supporting this as well. You know, really, it's an interesting issue because there's so few issues now. There's probably a lot of minor stuff going on, but there's so few issues now that are big that you can bite into, yet it's getting bipartisan support. And this is one. When the 220 members of Congress held stocks in 2020, the most popular investments, according to a Washington Post analysis, was Apple, Microsoft, Disney, Alphabet, Amazon. They regulate these companies. But again, nothing's illegal about this. Tech stops are among the highest investment. But notice something about all those names. They're also in popular investments with average American people. I mean, Amazon. How many people own that if they own stocks, right? So I guess I'm more shocked that it's only 220 members, at least then. It's not like there hasn't been an attention on stock owning by members of Congress before. There just hasn't been legislation to curb it. Bribery was still a crime, though, and things could still be immoral even if they weren't illegal. So you have, certainly, Credit Mobilier, which essentially is a scandal that's coming because Congress, while not just regulating, but actually sending jobs the way of the Credit Mobilier company in the form of jobs for construction of the Transcontinental Railroad also owned stock in the company. And representatives James Bayard of Delaware, William Allison of Iowa, uh, Roscoe Conkling of New York, John Logan of Illinois, Henry Wilson of Massachusetts. I mean, Wilson will actually deny that he owns any stock. He replaces Skylar Colfax as vice president. And one of the reasons is that there's some suspicions about Colfax that, you know, maybe he's in, involved in some things and maybe Wilson would be better, a better candidate. Um, Wilson ends up getting caught up in the whole Mobilier scandal, just like Colfax does. He says that he had paid for the stock in his wife's name with her money and never had taken possession of the shares. That didn't help his reputation very much. Of course, Wilson dies in office uh, as vice president a little bit later, so never got much farther. There's also a less known, you know, we know about Credit Mobilier, and it would make it seem like it's the only one. It's not. It's extremely common for ownership of various things. Um, it's not to just jump on Abraham Lincoln as if he's the worst, you know, as far as I know, as a member of Congress. Lincoln doesn't own anything. You, know, you got to have a Lincoln example for everything. But it's true when he's a state legislator in Illinois, and we talked about this in the Lincoln on Infrastructure. He really did not think anything of buying 
acres near a canal where the legislature was planning the canal at a very minimum price in the hopes that it would grow. He also purchased stock in the Sangamon Canal Company, but not a lot of questions about that. Not a lot, at least when it occurred. It was within propriety, and in fact, and I think this would go to the Morris example, this would go to some of the early stock owning in the Congress, it's seen as a vote of confidence. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You're putting your own money where your votes are and where your support for this canal project is. That's the way it would have been seen in Lincoln's time. Stephen Douglas, his great rival, also voting for that in the Illinois legislature, later becomes a congressman and finally approves legislation that will set up the Illinois Central Railroad that Lincoln was not able to get done and that Douglas were not able to get done merely as members of the Illinois State Legislature. But the Illinois Central Railroad goes from Chicago down to New Orleans. It's going to boost Chicago. I mean, Douglas, Stephen Douglas is really the booster of Chicago in Congress, but he's also buying up land. He buys up property around the lake where he knows the railroad will be built, sells it to the railroad for $21,320. But again, this is not just some dark transaction that happens in a room. This isn't like, oh, the worst thing ever in history, at least the way Americans saw things then. You know, it's expanding the city of Chicago. Here's what a Illinois Central Railroad executive says. There were about a half dozen locomotives flying about, whistling, screaming, puffing, blowing, backing, and going ahead. Five or six hundred teams of every description, loading and unloading. Two or three or four buildings going up skyward at the rate of a loft a day. Hammers banging, tin rattling, chisels clinking, and men swarming on what was the handsomest passenger station in the country. Immense loads of round hogs coming over from neighboring depots and not less than 50 cars of live ones standing here and there on the track. Merchandise of every description scattered around. Immigrants crowding everywhere. Passengers running about. Chicago booms. It booms so much that it's actually bad politically for Douglas, because as the city grows, people are against Douglas's type of squatter sovereignty politics and closer to the Whig Party or the burgeoning Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln. Douglas doesn't carry Chicago when he runs against Abraham Lincoln in 1858, first time he loses the city. He doesn't carry Chicago when uh, 
when he runs for president in 1860. Lincoln does. But I did want to tell a bit of a story about um, a case involving members of Congress owning stock that involves Alexander Graham Bell. He's a professor of elocation at Boston University. He's tutoring deaf children. And he begun electrical experiments in Scotland. And he was researching telegraphs. And at the same time, there's another event to Alicia Gray that develops a telegraph device that has vibrating reeds that can transmit music, not speech, music. And he draws it and he develops it. Graham actually gets to the patent office first, but it's literally like the same day that Gray gets there. And the patent office actually suspends Bell application for three months, gives Gray time to submit a full patent application with claims. So while they're waiting for this battle between Gray and Bell, there's also others who say, I invented the telephone too. Rogers of uh, Mr. Rogers of the Pan Electric Telephone Company in Memphis, Tennessee, has no real claim to any telephone whatsoever, but he had one advantage. He had distributed his company stock to members of Congress, including then a senator, Augustus Garland. Now, this is going to be a problem when Garland becomes the Attorney General of the United States. But I talked about this in something that I only previously previously had released on the Premium Cast, and we'll read it now. It's a little bit from um, Frank Carpenter's book from the 1880s about life in Washington. We talked about the history of the telephone on the latest podcast. One thing to note is that Alexander Graham Bell's way to gaining the uh, telephone technology was not easy. And there was uh, problems, including a, a scandal that reached all the way to the cabinet of President Grover Cleveland. We have the occasion now to read more from some of Frank Carpenter's dispatches. The pan-electric telephone scandal is the sensation of Washington. In this case, which is being tried before the Secretary of Interior, Lamar, the claimants declare that Alexander Graham Bell did not invent the telephone, but stole his idea from others. He's even charged with being in collusion with patent office officials. Bell's legal defense has already amounted to a fortune. In his library, there are volumes upon volumes of printed testimony containing arguments for and against his right to the title of inventor of the telephone. In the Drawbaugh case, which was settled in Bell's favor not long ago, 550 witnesses were examined. Months and years were consumed in taking their testimony. Drawbar's own testimony filled three large printed volumes of 800 pages each, while that of Bell filled four. The trial itself lasted for weeks. This pan-electric telephone case involving the Secretary of the Interior, the Attorney General, Railroad Commissioner, and Assistant Commissioner of Patents, and numerous congressmen and senators, outranks all scandalous cases of corruption of our public men and all other attempts of unscrupulous lobbyists to influence 
There are such blots on our pages of our history from the very beginning of our government. Members of every Congress, from Washington's administration to that of Cleveland, have been charged with corruption. Many persons have been investigated. And some have been found to be actually implicated in deeds which should have sent them to the penitentiary. The Yazoo fraudulent claims were perhaps the biggest swindle of early times. Carpenter's here is referring to, in the state of Georgia, there was a land scandal where the legislature was getting rich off selling the land of the state. These had to do with lands that the state of Georgia sold to favored speculators for almost nothing. The Ohio purchase was similar. In 1787, the government gave 5 million acres of land to the Ohio Company, made up of New England men who lobbied the bill through Congress. Some of the greatest men of today, including Alexander Hamilton, were involved in this speculation. When later Congress began its investigation, the parties involved were too highly placed to be touched. So the matter was dropped. It's even stated that the location of the nation's capital was lobbied through Congress by George Washington, among others. Although it's not charged that he paid actual money for votes. But it has been pointed out that his own property, Mount Vernon, and that of his wife, where Arlington now is, stood to benefit greatly from this choice of location. <laughs> well, Frank G. Carpenter there back in the 1880s lobbying a little attack at the, the first president, and perhaps a little attack at his... Uh, home of, uh, temporary home of Washington, D.C., I think it gets some things wrong, or at least gets the point wrong. It's, it's obvious that George Washington chose the location. Many people were looking to him to do just that. But, um, that choice of location over, say, Philadelphia or New York had a lot to do with maneuverings in Congress and with the, uh, passage of the Assumption Bill that Hamilton wanted because uh, Alexander Hamilton, friend of Washington as he was, would have much uh, rather had the capital in New York, and the Pennsylvanians would have much rather had it in Philadelphia. So, I mean, certainly George Washington was very involved with the building there, but uh, uh, nothing, nothing scandalous. The Star Route trial, which has proved a failure, has again demonstrated that no jury of Washington's will ever condemn stealing from the government. Washington City deems the United States Treasury its legitimate prey and would laugh at the man who would not steal from it if he could. One might go on and on recording examples of corruption in the past, but he could not cite one equal to this pan-electric scheme which, based on the selling of millions of dollars of valueless stock, tries to grab the rights to a successful invention and makes high officers of the government into the most accomplished of burglars. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. 
Everyone's curious about the men involved. We hear of nothing but the Rogers, father and son. The father, who has engineered the selling of the stock, has a checkered career. He's well-educated, was an Episcopal clergyman who became converted to Catholicism and wished to become a priest. The Catholic Church, being a good judge of character, would have none of him. After the war, his sympathy still being with the South, he wrote a secessionist drama entitled, I think, Mrs. Surratt, which lauded the woman who was hanged on the charge of being involved in the plot to assassinate Lincoln. This drama old Mr. Rogers had on his hands with his son Harry, the inventor of this new telephone, became connected with the government as electrician of the capital. There he constructed his first telephone, which he patented under the name Secret Telephone, and which later he sold to the Panelectric Company for about $60,000. While the Panelectric scheme was underway, his backers thought it would be wise that young Rogers should remain as electrician of the Capitol. Rogers told Attorney General Garland that salary was of no consideration, but that his being there would advertise the company and permit him to experiment at government expense. Garland, at his charge, counseled him to keep the place and turn the salary into the company. Nice advice, if it is true, coming from the Attorney General of the United States. The Honorable Casey Young, ex-member of Congress from Tennessee, has been grand manager of the scheme. He is confident that his pan-electric telephone is going to be a huge success, and he tries to convince the public that its inventor is being persecuted by Bell. Robert Vance, the assistant commissioner of patents, another figure in this pan-electric gallery, was the one who first introduced the bill in its favor into the last house. Attorney General Garland is not rich. I suppose that out in the wilds of Arkansas, where... The code of public morals is not the most advanced. His actions in this business would be looked on as smart rather than unscrupulous. From his education, I can easily imagine that Garland might have gone on to this scheme without a full appreciation of the ethics of his actions. Take a western frontier town with a practice of laws chiefly bleeding eastern capitalists for the defense of their land claims. If a man succeeds, no one asked how he obtained his success. And when he gets into public office, he does things he would never have done with a different background. I am told that President Cleveland understands Garland and that he leaves little of importance for him to decide. Scandals such as the Pan-Electric have given the people of the United States an exaggerated idea of the extent of lobbying in Washington. Congressmen do not often sell their votes for actual money. How much of the lobbying here is legitimate and honorable? A man who seeks to influence legislation by convincing congressmen of the best way to vote, by arguments only, is also called a lobbyist. During the agitation about the wool tariff this year, many prominent men in that business were lobbying, among them little Dave Harpster of Northern Ohio. No one would ever think of accusing Farmer Dave of anything shady. And the large part of the Washington lobbyists are just as honorable as he. Of the hundreds of pension lobbyists, National bank lobbyists, tariff lobbyists, steamship lobbyists, mail contract lobbyists, nine-tenths are sound businessmen 
who would not think of trying to buy votes in Congress. So at the time Carpenter's writing this article, uh, we don't know the outcome of the case, but that outcome was decided by the Supreme Court. Here from the History of the Supreme Court by Gustavius Myers, Volume 1. The principal competitor of the Bell Telephone was the Panelectric Telephone Company. This company charged its opponents, the Bell Telephone Company, with having resorted to a campaign of bribery by means of money or gifts of stock in order to get its patent claims, laws, and franchises and decisions. On the other hand, the testimony before a congressional committee showed that to get the government officials to move in the courts for vacating the Bell patents, large blocks of stock were distributed by the Pan Electric Telephone Company to influential representatives and senators, some of whom became directors of the company. It's also charged that United States Attorney General Garland, who had the practical power of deciding whether or not suits to vacate the Bell patent should be brought, held $10 million of Panelectric stock, for which he had not paid a dollar. It's never been proven, it's not proven, but in fact a contract was produced before the Congressional Committee proving that on August 4th, 1875, the Panelectric Company and the National Improved Telephone Company of Louisiana had agreed in writing that they would begin suit against the American Bell Telephone Company provided they could obtain the assent of the Attorney General of the United States. There were five actions against the American Bell Telephone Company revolving around the point of whether Bell, or a man named Dalbert, was the inventor of the telephone. The decision came down favorable to the Bell patent. Seven justices, uh, Justice Gray had re- refrained from taking part because of interest, and there was one vacancy on the court. Seven justices, of whom Waite, Miller, Blatchford and Matthews concurred in a majority opinion favorable to Bell. Bradley, Field, and Harlan dissented from some of the conclusions reached by the majority. Garland appears before the House, expresses surprise, innocence, says, I didn't know, gets rid of his stock, tells Rogers the company should be dissolved, and the case against Bell's patent collapses, and... You know, Graham Bell gets the the patent for the telephone. It's not without some attack. I mean, um, Thomas Nast, who had supported Cleveland, still does, but thinks this Garland episode is very um, close to something James G. Blaine, his opponent, would have done. Cleveland, however, retains his seat as Attorney General, remains it through the end of Cleveland's first term to 1889. You know, I mean, and I don't know what to say about the, on the issue of whether um, Congress should own stocks or not. Um, there is one study, Capital Losses, The Mediocre Performance of Congressional Stock Portfolios by Andrew C. Eggers and Jens Heinmuller. Okay, and that shows... Our study indicates that members of Congress enjoy no special advantage of investors. They looked at the 2004 to 2008 period and also looked at prior studies. We do not see evidence of systemic trading acumen. Further, our analysis of the performance of members' actual portfolios, first of its kind, indicates that members of Congress would, in recent years, have fared better if they liquidated their common stock holdings 
and put all the money into a passive index fund. Giving voluminous research showing that neither individual investors nor financial professionals systematically outperform the market, the finding that members of Congress are mediocre investors is only surprising because first, previous research appears to have convinced much of the public otherwise, and second, some members of Congress presumably have access to information about upcoming legislation, for example, that they could use to reap investing profits. As we have shown here, existing research makes a weaker case for trading acumen in Congress. Yeah, and I think I agree. This is an older study. Um, This is an older study where Eggers and Hanmuller have a point is if you're just talking about broad ownership in stocks, where you start to get into specific stocks that are going to benefit from a specific law, you know, I think that's something that hopefully the transparency picks up. Maybe this goes to the news media, too, for a little bit better reporting. I mean, some of the things that we cover day to day do not involve the House of Representatives or what they're doing, but um, usually involve the big guy, right? The guy in the White House. And, you know, there's numerous rules that govern what they do, and there's also a lot of attention to them. So maybe a little more attention there to pick up on these situations. You know, it's not a popular opinion, right, to say this, but... I do think while it would be well and easy to see Congress kind of turn the cannons on themselves, they're always very popular, limit themselves in this activity, um, there is an argument to be made. Even if it's not popular to make, that uh, do you want to limit the type of person that runs for Congress? They're just They're going to be afraid they're going to have to sell. What if it's a, uh, you're entering like a 2008 period? So somebody's you know just going to join Congress, they're thinking about running, and they have some stock. Now you enter like kind of like the stock market's way down. I got to sell now. Um, you could tell them they have to put it in a blind trust. Blind trusts go several directions. You know, there were criticisms, for instance, of Vice President Dick Cheney's blind trust during his time that even though it was a blind trust, he knew he had certain stocks and maybe the blind trust is going to get rid of them all. You don't know, but probably not. So you're, you know, that kind of thing. Do you want to limit Congress to just people who don't have any investments? Do you want to tell people who are members of Congress that even if they take their own congressional salary, we've agreed to pay them and invest it, they can only get the mediocre percentages of interest, which are really in the United States right now, nothing at all and nothing else? I mean, you know, are we making it a kind of... um you know, returning the, the seat in Congress into a priesthood when it should be a representative that anybody could be, anyone can run for, that's of the age requirement. Something to think about um, as they consider legislation. I, I'm always uh, one for a little more moderation, like maybe let's try to find where there would be specific legislation and then maybe um, limit trades. And then you could do enforcement after the fact, so it could be looked at. Because it's one thing to say, you got to sell all your stocks right now in this year because you're entering Congress. Oh, great. Stock market just went down. It's another thing to say, you can't sell or you must sell this particular stock before this particular hearing. Um, In terms of the history, what I think we've had here is this is an area that Congress has been very loose about and Americans haven't always held their feet to the fire enough, they haven't been concerned enough to do it, except when there have been large scandals. But there have indeed been 
large, like, politics-changing scandals in the House over stock ownership in the past. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.